Good morning. We had a little break from our, our normal teaching routine just in the last week with the uh, family Christmas worship service last Sunday. Wasn't that a wonderful time together? I was so blessed by that. Um, here's a couple pictures if you weren't able to join us, but to have all generations in the church worshiping and, and helping to lead worship together. Uh, sharing the word and, and leading us in song. And um, it was just a, such a blessing to see a little church like ours present such an offering of worship to the Lord. And so I look forward to that every year. And next Sunday, I'm going to have a, Chris, a, a special Christmas message because it will be Christmas Eve. And then, as uh, Stephen mentioned, we'll be back at 5 p.m. for our candlelight service. But this morning... We're back in our study of the book of First and Second Thessalonians, and the title of that series is Dear Church, and as you know, it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the new believers at the church he had just founded a few months before in Thessalonica. But it's more than that, it's the inspired word of God, and so it's also a letter from God to each of us. And so as we jump back into 1 Thessalonians this morning, the message title is Facing Opposition. And we're going to look at chapter 2, verse 17, through chapter 3, verse 13. And I hope to see three important points in this outline. First of all, devilish persecution. Then secondly, divine provision in verses 6 through 8 of chapter 3. And finally, devoted prayer in verses 9 through 13. So that's what we'll be looking for. The text is long enough that I think we'll just read through it a little at a time as we work through it. Hopefully you have a chance maybe to just read the text in advance uh, during the week as you prepare for our time together on Sunday. So, um, but I want to back up just a couple verses to chapter 2, verse 14. Because this is really where the account of persecution, where that topic kind of begins. And so in verse 14 of chapter 2, Paul writes, For you brothers became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and, are all, and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Now, this, is, this letter was written, we think, around 51 AD. And you have to remember that at that time, most believers were Jewish and most of them were still in and around Judea. In the days and weeks following Pentecost, tens of thousands of Jewish people gave their life to the Lord and became followers of Christ. Now we know salvation is a free gift, but once saved, walking with Jesus, those Jewish believers paid a high price. They were persecuted intensely for their faith, and they were persecuted by their countrymen, even by their own family members. And that's what Paul is alluding to here. Now, what's interesting, though, is one of the ringleaders of that persecution was Saul of Tarsus. 
the very man who's now writing this letter, speaking about that persecution. But at the time, he thought he was doing the work of the Lord. He thought he was doing a good thing by persecuting the followers of Jesus until he met the Lord Jesus himself. And his conversion radically changed his perspective on life and his purpose in life. And so God renamed him from Saul to Paul and appointed him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And Jesus said this of Paul. He said, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Isn't that interesting? And then in, uh, so Paul goes from being the persecutor to being persecuted. That always makes me think of the late, the crocodile hunter. Remember the crocodile hunter, one of Dave's favorite people, the late Steve Irwin? He said, the hunter has become the hunted. Well, that's kind of what happened with the apostle Paul. And it says in verse 16 that this persecution was their effort to keep us, meaning the apostles, from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. They wanted to stop the advance of the gospel. They didn't want, but it didn't work. Because those Jewish believers remained faithful, steadfast in their faith, despite the severe persecution. And now Paul himself is taking this gospel message into Europe. And many, many Gentiles are giving their lives to the Lord. They are becoming believers. And, but just like the Jews, the Gentiles are now facing persecution, often by their own countrymen. So that's kind of the backdrop in verses 14 through 16. And as we get into our text in verse 17, we're going to see more of what I'm calling devilish persecution. And it says, it reads in verse 17 now, but brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. Paul and Silas and Timothy, they were torn away, he says. They were driven physically out of Thessalonica just three weeks after they arrived. And the account is in chapter 17. They arrive, they start preaching the gospel at the, at the synagogue, and some Jews, and many, and then later many Gentiles place their faith in Christ. But as that was happening, let me read you what Acts chapter 17 says, beginning in verse 5. It says, But the Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They're all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into a turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. They had just birthed this church and are being driven away from these new believers. This mob, this riot forced them to flee to Berea. Guess what? The same 
thugs caught up with him in Berea, drove him out of Berea. He went to Athens and later to Corinth. Now, I came across something interesting this week. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts in chapter 17, he said that this mob in Thessalonica dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials. And the word that's translated city officials is the Greek word politarchus. And for centuries, skeptics have said, there is no such word anywhere in Greek literature. And it just shows you that the Gospels are unreliable and that he, did, he just didn't know what he was writing about. He was misleading people. No such government office, Polytarchus, ever existed. Well, that was what they said for centuries. But in 1877, they unearthed this block of marble. Now this is on display at the British Museum and it was part of a Roman gate structure in guess where? Thessalonica. They unearthed this Roman, this huge Roman gate and there's this block with an inscription in it and it's called the Polytarch inscription and it was part of this Varder gate and the very first word in this is Polytarchs. And then it lists six of them. Two of them, it listed mother and their father. And it listed this treasurer of the city. And so now, here's this evidence that this did exist all along. And since that time, there have been more and more, 70 of these inscriptions found that references this political office of polytarchs. 40 of these were in Macedonia, which is in and around Thessalonica. And 30 of them were in Thessalonica itself. Some of them date back to 100 BC. So archaeology has never proven the Bible wrong. Quite the contrary. It confirms it again and again and again. Tens of thousands of instances of archaeology confirming the exact word of God. And so here's a list of these city officials. Some probably the very men that Jason and the brothers were drugged before in Thessalonica. And so... Verse 18 then says, For we wanted to come to you. This would be Paul and Silas and Timothy. He said, Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us. You know, he said in verse 17, Paul said he had this intense longing to go back. It's really passionate words. And in 18, he says he tried and tried again and again to go back and visit these brothers. What do you suppose made him want to see them so badly? What was driving him? I mean, this is a very intense longing that he had. I think the answer is this. They were his spiritual children. Follow me on this thought. If a brother in Christ can be closer than a biological brother or sister, well then... It follows, and, and scripture says they can. There is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Jesus said, who's my mother? Who's my brothers? Those who do the will of God are my mother and my brother and my sister. There's a tighter bond there. Now, if that's the case, then it follows that feelings toward a spiritual child can be just as great or even greater than our own offspring. Have you ever thought about that? Stephen... Actually, Dave and Jan mentioned this morning about traveling home to see family. I'm sure a lot of us are going to be traveling to see family over Christmas. But you, 
probably find that not all of your family shares your faith, right? They have a different worldview. They have a different value system, a different purpose in life. And as a result, there's conflict, right? There's tension. Sometimes it kind of explodes physically or verbally. Sometimes it's just there and you can kind of cut it with the knife. You ever been in that situation? Some of you have family members that think you're a member of some kind of cult or something. So there's this tension. But when people come back from seeing family, I hear this a lot and I feel it myself. Oh, it's so good to be back with my church family. Do you feel that? Because there's this relationship that exists. We share the same faith. We share the same spirit of God. We're members of one body together. We're closer than biological brothers and sisters. And so this is what I think was driving Paul. And it's why he said, I made every effort to visit these dear brothers and sisters. But he wasn't able to. And the reason, he says, is Satan stopped us. Now that got my attention. Satan stopped us. There were other times on this same journey where God stopped them. Wouldn't let them go this way. He said, no, you need to go this way into Macedonia. He was stopped later on from going into the theater in Ephesus. I think that was God's hand. But here he says, Satan stopped us. Satan in the Bible is described as the enemy, the evil one, the father of lies, the ruler of darkness, a murderer, a tempter, a thief. This is Satan. Yet our culture likes to make him out to be some kind of cute Harmless, if not imaginary, being. You see these cute little caricatures, and you see people even dressing their kids up as the devil for Halloween. Or, real common thing now, you want kind of an edgy name for your sports team, so you name them after the devil. The El Paso Diablos, the Duke Blue Devils. Any Duke alumni here? Sorry. <laughs> the Blue Devils. This is, this is what we see. But he's not a cute, harmless, or even imaginary being. He's vile. And he is hell-bent on destroying you and me. Why? Because God loves you. Satan hates God, so he hates anything that God loves. And he loves anything that God hates. He hates you because God loves you. This Satan, he is, think of like Hitler and Hamas, only infinitely more evil, destructive, vile. This is who he is. I think Wikipedia actually has a really good definition of the devil. It says this, a supernatural entity that is the personification of evil and the enemy of God and humankind. That's pretty good, isn't it? Now, you know what? I have this, you ever get one of these weird kind of epiphanies, revelations? Just, just a couple months ago, for the first time, I realized that the word devil contains the word evil. <laughs> have you ever noticed that? I mentioned it to a bunch of people, and they go, oh, I never noticed that. I hadn't either, full disclosure. But I think it's fitting. I don't know that there's an etymological you know, reason for that, but it's just interesting to me. He is the personification of evil. 
and the enemy of God and humankind. Now here's what I think is going on in our text. As hard as Satan tried, he couldn't stop the good news of Jesus from getting to the Gentiles. And he couldn't stop these churches from being planted. So the next thing he tries is to stop Paul from going and visiting them. Why? What's the big deal? He just wants to go see them. Well, if he could keep Paul and the other apostles away from these new churches, he might keep them from teaching and equipping and encouraging them in the truth of the word. And then they'd be more vulnerable to false teachers who could come in and derail their faith, who could come in and maybe even put an end to the church. Maybe it would die out. And so he's strongly, intensely opposing these new believers. The Department of Homeland Security uses the term soft target. And they use it to refer to a person or a thing that's easily accessible and relatively unprotected, making them vulnerable to military or terrorist attack. Well, in a spiritual sense, new believers are what you could call a soft target for the enemy. They're not yet grounded in the word of God. They're just learning about prayer and the importance of the study of the word of God and fellowship with believers in worship. Most have few, if any, Christian friends. Some don't even belong to a local church. And so they're more vulnerable to attack. Do you remember when Jesus told the parable of the four soils and the sower scattered the seed? He said this in Matthew 13. The one who received the seed that fell on the rocky places is the man who hears the word of God and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. Listen to this. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. See, if you're a new or a newer believer, the enemy has you in his crosshairs. He has his sights on you because you're more vulnerable. We're all vulnerable, but a new believer is even more vulnerable. Maybe you even notice it right after you gave your life to Christ. You were tempted by things that never tempted you before. Wow, that never had any power. Now, why, why do I feel this desire to do something evil here? Or maybe that person, maybe that woman, she never gave me the time of day, but now like she's got the hots for me. What's that all about? And I'm a married man. Guess what? The enemy wants to derail you. Now, he doesn't attack people who are in his camp. Why should he? But once you take your stand for Jesus Christ, the battle begins. You're in his crosshairs. He wants to trip you up. So we have to be really careful. And we need to give particular attention to new believers and help them to mature in that faith. So Paul says Satan stopped them again and again from visiting these new believers. Now whether he stopped them directly or indirectly, we don't know. But he recognized that this was Satan. Now I've heard people say things like, well, Satan's really been hassling me today, or I had to rebuke the devil, or, you know, Satan made me do it. But I don't think any one of us has probably ever gone toe-to-toe -to -toe with Satan. And here's why I say that. 
Because unlike God, Satan is not omnipresent. He's limited. He can only be in one place at a time. Whoa, how did we get there? There we go. He's limited. And, and I like to think that he's got bigger fish to fry than you or me. If he's going to come hang out in St. Charles, he's probably going to go to those bigger churches up the road, right? <laughs> Maybe he already has. Maybe that's what happened. <laughs> Lord, don't let him come here. But I, I just say this because I don't think we've ever come face-to-face, one-on-one with Satan. We give him too much credit if we think that he can be every place at one time. He cannot. He's limited, but he's still a threat because he doesn't work alone. <laughs> Ephesians 6.12 says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's Satan and his demons. That's who our struggle is against. But again, I don't think we've ever gone one-on-one with Satan. Maybe you have. I don't know. And I want to just be careful that we don't, you know, read that into things. Yet, in the first century, this is the birth of the church. This is the gospel going into Europe for the first time. This is the apostle Paul, the, the apostle to the Gentiles. He's the man that God would use to write half the books in the New Testament. Satan clearly had his sights on him. He wanted to nip this thing in the bud right there. So I do believe that his effort, his attention was focused right there. Paul and the new churches were an obvious target of Satan. And so he says quite clearly, Satan stopped us. It was devilish persecution. Verse 19, Paul writes, For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. See, Paul wasn't in it for the money or the fame. His only goal was to be faithful and to see others come to Christ. And to see them grow in their faith. This was his hope and his joy, and his glory. And when our lives are over, what will we really have to show for it? You ever thought about that? How much of what we've done will last? Well, this is where I come to this quote. I really like it. I've shared it with you before. It comes from the British missionary Charles Thomas Studd. There he is. That guy is a stud. I wish, wish I were a stud like him. C.T. Studd, and here's what he said. The simple little quote, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When you're a stud, you can use words like twill. (laughs) (laughs) Only what's done for Christ will last. Now, we can agree with that, but right now it's, kind of, it's hard to get our minds around that because we look around and all we see is all this stuff around us. All of the entrapments, all of the things of this world, many of which are blessings from God, but it's easy to get so wrapped up in that. But one day it'll all be gone and we will be in the presence of our Lord Jesus. And what will we glory in then? Only what's done for Christ will last. That's all we'll have. 
And so this was the Apostle Paul's glory, his joy, his hope, was the faith of these new believers. George W. Tewitt was a, was a well-known pastor in the early to mid-1980s. I said his name wrong, it's Truett. And he was invited to dinner at the ranch of a very wealthy Texas businessman. He was an oil guy, and after the meal, his host led him out to this place on the ranch where they could get a view of all the surrounding area. And he pointed to the oil wells dotting the landscape, and he boasted, 25 years ago, I had nothing. Now, as far as you can see, all of this is mine. And then he looked in the opposite direction at the sprawling fields of grain, and he said, all of this is mine. And then he looked to the east, and herds of cattle, and he, he bragged, they're all mine. And then he looked to the west, and he said, that's all mine too, the forest. As far as the eye could see, he owned it. And then he paused, expecting Dr. Truett to commend him for his, you know, his, his wealth and, and all that he had accomplished, his great success. But Dr. Truett simply put his hand on his shoulder and pointing heavenward, he just said, how much do you have in that direction? To which the man hung his head and confessed, I never thought of that. Only what's done for Christ will last. And so this is Paul's joy, his hope, his glory. It's all wrapped up in these new believers. No wonder he cared. You know, where you're where your treasure is, where your time, that's where your heart is too. And so this was what he was so intently focused on. So chapter 3, verse 1, he writes, So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. Well, Paul firmly believed that it was still God's will for someone to go and teach and strengthen and encourage these new believers. The ESV says to establish and exhort you in your faith. Now the word translated strengthen or establish is a Greek word sterizo. And it carries this literal idea of a foundation. And these builders in the first century in which Paul lived, they knew a lot about the importance of a solid foundation. In the middle of the modern day city of Thessaloniki lies the ruins of the biblical city of Thessalonica. And for centuries, it lied beneath the modern city, undiscovered. And then in 1966, they were preparing to build a new courthouse and they got out their excavators and they uncovered the Roman Forum and a bunch of buildings dating back as far as the first and second century BC. This, this shows the Roman Forum itself. And then beneath the Forum, they found even earlier structures. These were Greek baths. And you can see the walls of the forum built up right over the top of them to the right. All of this was there underground. They also uncovered this amazing structure. They called it the Odium. It was, a, like, a, it was like a theater. It would have been completely enclosed at the time, but all of that structure is now gone. And all of these ancient buildings, they had these foundations that went well below ground level. 
And so here you can see some of the foundations and they were these alternating courses of stone and brick and it gave them great stability and they put them well below the ground because they needed a solid foundation to build the building upon. So this is the type of thing that Paul was familiar with. It's what he would have had in mind and what the Thessalonians would have had in mind when he talked about them being established and strengthened, grounded, a firm foundation in the faith. A foundation that could withstand these trials that were coming. And so seeing them well established like this was a top priority for Paul. After all, we've got to remember the Great Commission is not to make converts, is it? It's to make what? Disciples. Disciples. Billy Graham, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, learned early on that many of the people who make a decision for Christ at a crusade event don't go on to Christian maturity. And so early on, they began putting a focus on follow-up and discipling them. Billy Graham himself said this. He said, evangelism is more than simply encouraging decisions for Christ. It's urging people to become disciples, followers of Jesus Christ. He probably said it more like this. Disciples, followers of Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know, I love this rich accent. But it's so true. The greatest evangelism in the world, said, the greatest evangelist in the world said, it doesn't stop there. That's just the start. And now these followers, these new believers are going to be under attack. They need a foundation. They need to be well grounded. And so that was what was motivating Paul here. Satan stopped them, but he didn't give up. He remained faithful and he remained flexible. He resorted to plan B. FaceTime wasn't an option. You know, we had that today. He couldn't do that. So what did he do? He sent Timothy in his place to go to the church. Remember, Timothy was a young believer. Paul had just met him earlier on this journey when they were in Lystra. He was young, but he was faithful and he was mature for his age. So Paul sends them. And verses 2 and 3 say the goal was to strengthen and encourage them so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. Look also at the end of verse 3. Paul writes, You know quite well that we were destined for them. Ooh, how's that for predestination? You were predestined for trials and persecution. Do you believe that? Jesus said so. He said, If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. He said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We were predestined for trials. It was sure to happen, and Jesus warned us in advance so that when that persecution comes, we won't think, oh no, this whole thing is falling apart. Maybe God doesn't love me after all. Maybe I'm not really his child. Maybe he's not sovereign. Maybe he can't stop evil. All kinds of doubts could enter our minds if we suppose that once we give our life to Christ, everything's going to be rosy, our troubles are behind us. No. Jesus forewarned his disciples, and Paul did too. Look at verse 4. Paul writes, In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. 
And it turned out that way, as you well know. Well, are you and I surprised when we face trials? Do we wonder, why is this happening to me? This isn't what I signed up for. Why are we so surprised? Maybe it's because we haven't taken seriously the warning of the Lord. You will face persecution, yet God uses that persecution. He uses it to hone and refine us. He uses it to build character and perseverance. He uses it to develop compassion for other people who are hurting. God takes what seems so ah, painful and he uses it for our good. He says those he loves, he disciplines just as a father disciplines his son. And we have to remember too, the words of God, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Light and momentary. So, we got to remember, persecution will happen. Trials will happen. You're still loved by God. He's still in control. Now, verse 5 says, For this reason, when I could not, when I could stand it no longer, there he says it again, when I just couldn't stand it anymore, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. He thought, all this effort, all this persecution, these beatings that I've gone through, being thrown in prison, all of that would be a waste if these new believers abandoned their faith. So this was the devilish persecution. Persecution of the the new believers in persecution of the apostles themselves. Let's look next at, at the divine provision in verses 6 through 8 of chapter 3. He reads, But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He's told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we long to see you. Timothy Returned with good news, in fact, great news. And you'll recognize the word for good news. It's euangelizo. Does it sound familiar? It's where we get the word evangelism. Euangelizo. Good news. We say the gospel means good news. Well, when you see this word in scripture, it almost always is translated preach the gospel. Euangelizo. Preach the gospel. It's almost that, always that way. In fact, this is the only time that the Apostle Paul uses it in any other context other than preach the gospel. Euangelizo. They came back with euangelizo, good news. Paul almost puts this on the same level as the first time that people hear that Jesus rose from the dead, that he offers us forgiveness, that the gates of heaven are open. Euangelizo, good news news. That's how excited he was to hear about these young believers' faith. It was great news. Now, if you want to measure the spiritual health of a church or a believer, look at their faith and love. Look at their faith and their love. 
And Paul wrote this to the Galatians in Galatians 5, 6. He said, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, meaning sticking to laws and regulation, none of that has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You can't just look at faith. Because what does the Bible say? Faith without good works is useless. You can say you have faith, but if you're not doing anything with it, is that faith? That's dead. So faith expressing itself through love. What's the greatest work of all? It's love. Love for God and love for one another. And this is the evidence of our faith. It's faith expressing itself through love. So Timothy brings this good news, euangelizo, of their faith and their love. And then the second half of, of verse 16 is interesting, or of verse 6 is interesting to me. Paul writes, he's told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we long to see you. Now it's kind of touching to me that the Apostle Paul would even care about what those Thessalonians thought about him. I don't know, I kind of imagine Paul thinking something like, they can think whatever they want, I don't care. We're not trying to please men, but God. But in this tender moment, Paul lets his feelings show through. He writes, you always have pleasant memories of us and you long to see us. You know, it was just a, it, it mattered to Paul what they thought about him. Isn't that something? It was another sign of their love for the brothers and sisters in Christ, their love for the apostles. I care about what people think about me, and I'm sure you do too, right? It matters, it hurts when they think ill things of us. We're human, and we have feelings. And so what people think matters, and that's not wrong as long as we don't become people pleasers. Remember, we saw that earlier in chapter 2. People pleasers, those who put the approval of man above the approval of God. Where they change what they do in disobedience to God in order to be pleasing to man. So what matters most is what God thinks about us. But when the hearts and minds of others align with the heart and mind of God, isn't it just like a warm blanket to our soul? That's what I think Paul's saying here. You always have pleasant memories of us. And you long to see us. He felt a love and affection from these new believers. So he continues then in verse 7. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. Did you catch that? Paul was in distress. Now, so many times I think of Paul and Silas sitting in the prison in Philippi. And that wasn't long before they were at this point in the scripture, but they're sitting there and they're singing worship songs to God. And I think, man, this guy is amazing. And he is. But he was in distress. He was agonizing over not knowing how these believers in Thessalonica were doing. And on top of that, he was under constant persecution. Let me read how he describes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. You know this account, he says, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. That was typically lethal. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. 
not this. <laughs> they threw rocks at him and tried to kill him. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I've labored and toiled, and I have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I've been cold and naked. And then this, besides everything else... I face daily the pressures of my concern for all the churches. He was in distress over this. It was a burden on his heart. That's real distress and persecution, isn't it? And so Satan stopped him from going. But the only reason Satan could stop him from going is because God allowed him to stop him. God allowed Satan to stop him. God is sovereign. He's still in control. Maybe God knew that if Paul went, he would be killed by the, by the mobs in Thessalonica. Maybe God knew there was a, a more important work for him to do in Athens and Corinth. Maybe God wanted to use uh, Timothy in a unique way. See, God knows the hearts of men and he knows what tomorrow holds. He knows all things and he knows what's best for us. So, in this case, God knew there was a need to strengthen and encourage the church. But he also knew there was a need to encourage Paul. Paul's writing, I was in distress and persecution. He doesn't often let that show. He'd been beaten and driven out of one city after another. And now he's in Athens and Corinth. Let me read you what he wrote about his arrival in Corinth. He wrote this to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 3. He said, I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. He was in distress. Now his primary goal for sending Timothy was to strengthen and encourage the believers there. But God knew Paul also needed encouragement and God in his grace provided both verse 7 says in all our distress and persecution we were encouraged because of your faith God knows just what we need as we minister to other people as we live for him I can't tell you how many times I've been burdened by something in ministry it's just weighing on my heart and I might be feeling down and then out of nowhere comes a card or a phone call or a text or an email and it brings encouragement. It's like, oh Lord, you knew exactly what I needed and when I needed it. God is so good to provide that and he does that here for the Apostle Paul. And so Paul says in verse 8, for now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. This fills Paul up with joy. He echoes the words of another apostle, the apostle John, who wrote in 3 John 4, he said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Again, children, spiritual offspring, brothers and sisters in Christ, to know that they're walking in the truth. This was literally what Paul was living for. 
It's no exaggeration to say that. It's what he was living for, the faith of these other believers. Let me show you why I can say that so confidently. He wrote to the Philippians in chapter 1, beginning in verse 22. He said, if I'm going, if I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ will overflow on account of me. Paul was living for one thing only. He said, if I'm not going to do this, I might as well be dead and be home with the Lord. But I'm living for this, for your progress and joy in the faith. He was living for the faith of other people, the, the believers. What else is there to live for in his mind? So God raised up Timothy to visit the church. And through this, both the church and the apostles were strengthened and encouraged. God provided what both of them needed. It was God's divine provision. And then let's look finally at devout prayer in verses 9 through 13. Paul writes in verse 9, How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Do you hear the rejoicing? His distress, his agony, his turn to rejoicing. But notice right away who God is thanking. He doesn't say, How can we thank you guys enough for all the joy we have in the presence of God because of you and what you did? He doesn't say that. He says, how can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of God because of you? It was because of them, but he didn't thank them. He thanked God. Remember several weeks ago, the week of Thanksgiving, we just happened to be in this portion of scripture. And I said, Thanksgiving in the Bible is directed almost exclusively toward God. 160 of 162 occurrences and the other two are not the direct thanking of people. I challenge anybody to bring me a passage where somebody in scripture is thanking someone else. I have a prize for you. I haven't gotten any takers yet. Now I'm not saying it's wrong to thank people but again the thanks goes to God. He, he's thanking God for the faith and the love of the Thessalonians because God is the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the one who pours his love into our hearts so that it can overflow to others. So the source of these things is God and he should also be the primary object of our thankfulness. And that's what we see again here in this passage. So he says, verse 10, night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now he's not saying we pray all day and all night. He's saying that we pray during the day and we pray during the night. What he's saying is we pray often for you. Now, it didn't happen right away, but Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 5, describe Paul's eventual return to Macedonia. It says that he spent time there on his third missionary journey and he visited the people in the region. It doesn't name the Thessalonians specifically. There was Philippi, there was Thessalonica, 
but it's almost certain that he visited the Thessalonians. So Paul's prayer was answered. It was answered first in a way he didn't expect by the raising up of Timothy to go. And then later, as much as six or seven years later, Paul got to return and see those faithful brothers and encourage them. It says he wanted to go to supply what was lacking in their faith. That's not a criticism. It's just recognizing the fact they are still young and they're still growing. And there were still things that they needed to become fully mature. So then verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ clear the way for us to come to you. Now another, this is a fascinating verse because the subject of the sentence is plural. Two persons. Two persons. God, our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ. And then it says, may he or they clear the way for us to come to you. Or the ESV says, direct the way to you. And the verb to clear or to direct is singular. That's something you don't see in the English language. You can't tell it's singular, but it is. So it's a plural subject with a singular verb. What does that point to? The deity of Jesus and the unity of the Father and the Son. Now, unless we think, oh, it was just a, it was just a keystroke error. <laughs> you know, Paul there typing away. Okay, he's using his little quill. And he slipped and he made it singular instead of plural. Well, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Listen to what he writes there. He said, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. There's two verbs there. Encourage and strengthen. And they're both singular. Again, a plural subject with two singular verbs speaks to the deity of Jesus and the unity of the Father and the Son. We see a little more of Paul's prayer for the church. He's writing out his prayer. Even as he's writing, he's praying this. Verse 12, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else just as ours does for you. They were already known for their faith and love, right? But Paul is praying that it would increase even more and overflow in love for each other. Those are the believers in the church. And for everyone else, meaning unbelievers. Love, it's the identifying characteristic of our faith, right? Jesus said, by this all men will know you're my disciples if you love one another. So, now nowhere should our love be more evident than in our homes. And many people, many people have some real trials at home. I know that. Many of you have a spouse that is not a believer, have children that are not believers. But our love must still be evident there. I heard about a pastor counseling a man who was having marital trouble. And he said to the man, the Bible says husbands are to love their wives. And the man said, but I don't love her anymore. And then the pastor replied, well, then love her as your sister in the Lord. And he said, but I don't, she's not even a believer. And he said, well, then love her as your neighbor. And the man said, I have no intentions of being her neighbor. And the pastor said, then love her as your enemy. There's no wiggle room there. You are to love your spouse, believer or unbeliever, no matter what they do. 
You're to love them with the Christian love. It should overflow from you as a child of God. And it starts in the home. But it goes on from there. We're to love everyone else. Unbelievers as well. Co-workers. Extended family. Unbelievers in the marketplace. We're to love them. And then his prayer continues in verse 13, the last verse. He says, may he strengthen your heart so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. This speaking about the end time, I'm not going to get into this now. We're going to talk a lot about the end times as we get further into, as we get into chapter 4 and chapter 5. But I don't think this is speaking of the rapture when come, Christ comes back for his church. It's speaking of his second coming when he comes back with his church. And so we'll be looking at those events, the timing. We'll do, be doing our best to understand and apply those passages which speak to the end times. Because we are living in what scripture calls the last days. The last days began with the, the ascension of Christ. So, and, and the giving of the Spirit. So this is Paul's letter. And I want to just wrap up quickly. I want to look at a couple key things here that we should take home with us. First of all, in this life, we are destined for persecution. We got to get our mind around that. God promised it. He doesn't lie. So we shouldn't be surprised when it happens. Yet we got to remember, God's in control and he's going to use those trials, that persecution for our good. He's going to use it to refine us. And when it seems overwhelming and unending, we got to remember the truth of scripture that our light and momentary trials are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. New believers are particularly vulnerable to the enemy's attack. If you've given your life to the Lord recently, you're at greater risk. You need to seek out other believers to walk alongside you. You need to learn the disciplines of prayer and reading and study of the word and get involved in a Bible study. Get involved in your church body. Get somebody to walk alongside you and disciple you so that when the trials come, you're not like that seed on the rocky places that falls away quickly. The Great Commission is not about making converts, but disciples, faithful followers of Jesus. So we as a body, mature believers, need to come along those who are new in their faith. We need to encourage them. We need to shepherd them. We need to help establish a firm foundation for their faith. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Love is a measure of our faithfulness. Doesn't matter what we believe if it doesn't come out in what we do. It's the evidence that we're a child of God. And so how are we doing when it comes to loving both believers and unbelievers in our homes, around the table at Christmas, in our workplaces, out in the world? Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. I can pretty much guarantee all of us will be dead in 100 years. <laughs> you know, some of us will pass away in the year ahead. I'm almost certain, statistically, some of us will. Some of us might have five or 10 years left, but only what's done for Christ will last. 
Paul was living for the faith of other believers. That was his life purpose. So we need to prayerfully consider, what am I living for? What am I living for? How much of what I'm doing will last when this is over? And where the Lord leads us, we need to make changes. And finally, may the Lord make his love, our love, increase and overflow. Our love for each other and our love for everyone else. That'd be my prayer for each one of us this morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I, I just thank you that you came at Christmas. You went a great distance. You went from the highest height to the deepest depth to call us out of darkness and into your glorious light, to call us into a relationship with you. And then you call us to be light bearers, to share this good news of your love and your compassion and for your forgiveness. You angelied so. The gates of heaven are open. It's available to all who will confess their sin and believe and turn to you in faith. God, help us to proclaim that message with boldness, not allowing trials or persecution to trip us up. Help us align our, our lives with your purpose that we could say, I'm living for Christ. To live is Christ. To die is gain. God, that you would be what we're living for in your work here. And God, I just pray that you would continue to pour your love into our hearts. Increase our love so that it would overflow to those around us. That they would see your love in us. Believers and unbelievers, God. We want them to see your glory. We want them to be drawn close to you. God, might it start today and this season as we celebrate your coming. And so God, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.